You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Topic. I don't think we've done a show specifically on this topic before, but we're going to be talking about the burial of Jesus. And with that, I've got my friend Greg Manette here, who I understand is doing his PhD research on this topic. Now, who is he? He's the Canadian representative for Faith Life Corporation, the makers of Logos Fiber Software. Logos serves over 2.5 million customers and employees, nearly 500 people at their head office in Birmingham, Washington. Greg recently became an author of a first time, um, for the first time with the release of his book, For Wrong Jesus, Fact, Belief, Legend, Truth, Making Sense of What You've Heard. Greg earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and attained both his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts in Theology degrees from Acadia University's Divinity College in Wharfville, Nova Scotia, Canada. He is currently writing his doctoral thesis in the fields of field of Christian origins through the University of Radboud in the Netherlands under the guidance of John von der Waal and Michael Lacona. His dissertation is on the burial of Jesus in ancient Jewish burial practices. He is a student member of the Society of Biblical Literature. He has lectured in Canada, Israel, the UK, and the US. And he's a deeply passionate Canadian hockey fan who loves to read, travel, and spend time with his best friend and wife, Julie. He is also looking forward to Tom Brady and the New England Patriots winning their fifth Super Bowl very soon. So, um, yeah, we're uh, we're pray for your being a sports fan and such. But uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Yeah, yeah um, Greg, since uh, people might not know much about you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, well, first off, uh, Nick, I want to thank you for, for having me on your show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I live and I, I grew up in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. That's where I currently live with my wife. And um, I was raised in a Christian family. I'm the youngest of five, five children. I'm 31 years old. And my oldest brother is 40, so my parents uh, were busy for about nine years there. Uh, I had five kids. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, Sunday school. Uh, youth group, um, Bible camp, and you know I was one of those people that you know I, I you know I, I was a Christian for sure you know I identified myself as a believer and I you know I I really I uh, I held the core tenets of the faith but it wasn't something that made a big impact on my life it was sort of something in the background that you know I would go to church go to youth group I had some Christian friends but I didn't take it really seriously. And what happened was, you know, when I finally went to university, I took some uh, took some religious studies courses from a secular perspective. And, uh, you know, when I originally chose the courses that I did, 
you know, in Canada, we call the easy courses bird courses. So I wanted to sign up for as many bird courses as I could just to sort of get some easy grades so I wouldn't have to, so I could just sail through a few, few basic courses. So I, uh, I thought, what are some easy courses that I could be able to take that I wouldn't have to put too much effort into it? Cause, uh, you know, I just, I was what you considered. I, I know, uh, Michael Cota says the same thing that, when he was uh, younger, he was a gifted student, and if you gave him a C, that was a gift. Well, I was also a gifted student. That's why I wanted to take as many easy courses as possible. So I remember looking at the syllabus, and I was skimming through it, and, or at the course offering handbook, and I, I thought, intro to New Testaments, that'll be easy. I could crush that course. I wouldn't even have to, to study. I could practically teach the course from all my training at Sunday school and youth group. So I signed up for New Testament intro, and I signed up for the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And I also signed up for Hebrew Bible and comparative world religion, thinking these would be the easiest courses in the world, especially for someone like myself who grew up in the church. But what happened was, within about 30 minutes of sitting in my very first class, I had an instant uh, sense of uh, regret and uh, fear came over me as I realized that what I was about to learn in that class would change my life forever because it was the first time I was introduced to a critical approach to studying uh, religious texts, uh, and in this case, studying the New Testament, the Bible, and in the life mm-hmm. of Jesus. So, while I sat in this, these classes, I, you know, I, the first day of class, we had to open up our textbook, and my textbook for introduction to the New Testament was was uh, the New Testament introduction by a guy named Bart D. Ehrman. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I cracked open the textbook, and I thought, you know, this guy's. I thought this will be a good a good class. You know, it'll be wonderful. It'll be you know, straightforward, and the guy, you know, the textbook obviously will be written by someone who is probably a good evangelical Christian like myself who will reaffirm what I believed, and uh, it was anything but, and it was, it was, what happened was sort of my, you know, nonchalant approach to my faith, you know, was, I, I was at a crossroads when I got to university because I was taking these courses that were, that were tearing apart my faith before me and uh, my belief system in a critical fashion, and I didn't know how to respond to it. And I had, I, it was the first time in my life that I had a lot of doubts. Doubts flooded my mind and my soul, and I was really, really struggling. And it took a number of years. And the reason why I became interested in theology and New Testament and apologetics is because my, my own faith depended on it. Right. I was either, I was either gonna, to, to lose my, to leave my faith, become probably an agnostic, not an atheist, because I, I, I think I would have still believed there was some form of firepower, but I was either ready to leave Christianity or I was going to really struggle and try to find out whether I believed it or not. So what I did was I started to research the historical reliability of Christianity. And I came to the point that, you know, I realized that there are thousands of questions that one could ask about their faith to see, you know, that are good questions to ask. But I needed to find out, is there one question that if I get the answer to this question, it makes or breaks my faith? So sort of the shortcut, you know, that I could sort of just go to that and I could spend my energy on that one question. And I realized, you know, without looking too hard, that that question is, no surprise, is did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? And that that was the question for me. I personally have no problem living with a lot of tension in my faith. You know, does the Bible have diff- have discrepancies? You know, uh, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, you know, complementarianism, egalitarianism, 
uh, you know, did God create the world, you know, 10,000 years ago or over hundreds of millions, if not billions of years through macroevolution? You know, in the end of the day, if Jesus rose from the dead, the answers to those other questions do not impact whether or not whether my faith is is uh, is trustworthy or not. Okay, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. So I was listening to all that. Sorry, I thought you were done. But yeah, no, it's okay. As I was listening, I was saying there's a great lesson there for all these parents out there who are saying, you know, I'm raising my children up in Sunday school every day. I'm taking them to youth group. They are going to be fine when they get to college. They're not, are they? No, they're not fine at all. Mm-hmm. But to be fair to parents, mm-hmm. there's oftentimes there's not a lot you can do other than pray for your kids, but also try to introduce them to apologetics and uh, a critical way of looking at the Christian. Cr- critical doesn't mean skeptical, by the way. That's really important to keep in mind. The word critical and skeptical oftentimes gets conflated by many people today. They think that being critical means you need to be as skeptical as you can be about any belief system. That's simply not true. Right. Credible. The, to, to look to see to be critical is to see is to try to scrutinize something to see if there's a core a basis to it. That doesn't mean you stop believing it. It means to see if you can bolster your belief system to see if it stands up. Skepticism means it's 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 considered uh, guilty until proven innocent. That's the, so that's a bit different. So 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 what was your question again? So yeah, our parents are our children safe today and can parents relax just knowing if I brought my kid to church you're going to be able Okay. No. Uh, first off, you need to live out your faith in front of your kids, and second of all, you you, you should introduce your kids to a, a, a critical approach of understanding the faith from a young age. And don't be afraid of uh, when your kids go through that time of struggle and doubt, and uh, and let them go through that time because it it'll probably happen to most people. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, we're going to be talking today about the barrier of Jesus mainly. Now, last year there were two books that came out how Jesus became God and how God became Jesus. And uh, we had three of the authors at one time on How God Became Jesus on the show. Charles here, Michael Bird, and Chris Tilling were all on here once. And we had another author on previously. I think someone you know where, Dr. Craig Evans, was on. That's right, yep. And so one of the things that Ehrman talks about in his book was he came to the conclusion that Jesus was not buried, per se. I mean, not, not like buried in, say, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, not a real burial in a tomb of sorts. You wrote an article about how Bart Ehrman gets Jesus' burial wrong, and I have heard that Craig Evans pretty much says it's absolutely certain for us that, uh, that Jesus was buried, that to think otherwise just seems so preposterous in many ways. I don't remember his exact words, but he treats it as a certainty. What do you think? Well, first off, um, it's a great question. And when, when the first time I ever heard of the idea that that Bart Ehrman uh, didn't think that Jesus was, was buried was actually before the book came out. I saw um, Bart, who uh, I know personally, um, I saw him at Baltimore at the Society of Biblical Literature meetings. I think that was two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure the exact date. It may have been 2013. In any in any case, uh, I, I met him at the bookstall. And if you've ever been in the Society of Biblical Literature meeting, the, it's a you know it's a it's a new it's a Bible geeks heaven. You just you walk in there. There are hundreds of thousands of amazing books and a great 
big bargains, and it's a fantastic place to go. You'll just your mouth will water and look at how many great resources are for sale. But I met Bart in one of the bookstalls, and uh, he actually put that idea out there when I was chatting with him. And I I thought he was kidding at first. I thought he was joking because, you know, since uh, John Dominic Crossan, uh, a long time ago, I think over 20 years ago, um, uh, put forward the argument that Jesus was most likely not buried, but instead probably thrown in a ditch, uh, picked apart by wild dogs or carrion crows. And since since that time, virtually like no scholars in the world uphold that view anymore. And and then uh, Bart has sort of repopularized it in his uh, in his recent in his recent book, How Jesus Became God. In fact, here are, here are two quotes that that Bart uses. He, he says, "I think both views, referring to Jesus' burial in his empty tomb, are uh, unlikely." And another quote that was on page seven and on page one fifty one, he says, "In my judgment." We cannot know that Jesus received a decent burial and that his tomb was later discovered to be empty. Now, for me, uh, there are a number of problems, and I would actually direct anybody who wants to to know more about this to to check out my blog article at uh, gregmanette.com and check out, I wrote two blog articles, and I wish I could recall everything that I wrote in the blogs, but, you know, as the old joke says, you know, I used to have a photographic memory, but I ran out of film a long time ago, so I, <laughs> I can't remember everything I said, but, but Ehrman uh, makes a number of mistakes in, uh, in his argument in that book, How Jesus Became God, and he argues that um, he doesn't believe, obviously he doesn't believe the evidence is strong enough for the burial of Jesus, but when you look at the lay of the land of scholars who study ancient Jewish burial practices, you'll discover that you know those scholars who were involved in archaeology, uh, studying ancient texts, especially early Judaism, who aren't even Jesus experts, who just study the, the burial of the executed in and around Jerusalem, um, that virtually all of them uh, conclude that Jesus was most likely given a proper burial, not necessarily an honorable burial, but a proper burial, uh, and quite likely by a figure uh, named Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, first of all, Ehrman uh, argues in in both in the New Testament introduction textbook that I used at St. Mary's University and in almost all of his other writings that the criteria of authenticity, which Ehrman uh, adopts, you know that that they can be used to apply to ancient texts to so whatever pops to the surface using these criteria raises the plausibility uh, that the event in question took place and and one of those is the criterion of multiple attestation which is used by many historians not just New Testament historians to look at ancient texts and ancient events so you're looking at the life of Joseph of Arimathea and and uh, his existence, and that he buried Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels as the one who buried Jesus in, in a tomb, mm. and that's that's quite significant because many scholars, including Ehrman himself, believe that John's Gospel is most likely uh, was written independent of the other three, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, or had a vague knowledge of the Synoptics but went in a different direction. And John's Gospel is very different. It's not the same as the Synoptics. And uh, when John records something that, that lines up with Synoptics, uh, most scholars scratch their heads and think, you know, that that probably happened, or at least it's recorded very early. It's an early tradition. 
So, you know, Joseph Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels, and he's named explicitly, which is very important. And Because if you keep in mind, as, as even Araman himself argues, that all four canonical Gospels were composed within the first century, that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for a historical embellishment to start to develop, like a snowball going down a hill, picking up loose tradition that's fictional. Hmm. And if eyewitnesses, um, a recent author uh, named Robert McIver, uh, hmm. he argued that, you know, was by by uh, 30 to 40 years after the life of Jesus, there would have been approximately, you know, 1,100 1, or so or, or more eyewitnesses still alive to consult who most likely knew Jesus or saw Jesus' ministry in action. And by the time John's gospel is written, around 60 years or so after, if you go with the later date of John, around 60 years after the life of Jesus, uh, you would still have a few hundred eyewitnesses alive. You could consult salt to see whether or not the Jesus tradition recorded in John is to be trustworthy. So when even if you go with late dates of the Gospels, if, uh, if Joseph Arimathea did not exist, you would have expected uh, early redaction. The, the editorial uh, uh, work that was done most likely early on in the Gospels, if there was any uh, editorial like adjusting to the Gospel text themselves, uh, that they would have airbrushed Joseph Arimathea out of the story. They would have got rid of him. The other thing that Ehrman doesn't discuss anywhere in his, uh, in his argument for against the historicity of the burial of Jesus, Ehrman doesn't discuss anywhere archaeology and its impact and, its, uh, and how it helps build the case for the burial of uh, the executed in and around Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. And most of us know about the heel bone of, of Yehohanan, and, uh, and that was discovered at Gevat uh, HaMibtar. Uh, uh, an area around Jerusalem. Um, and that was a few decades ago, but and that and that that heel bone uh, is it, it, what happened was uh, we had we we discovered in this in an, in an old tomb there was an ossuary, an ancient limestone Jewish sort of coffin. It was a bone receptacle, and um, inside this uh, bone receptacle were discovered. Uh, the remains of this man named Yehohanan. The reason we know his name is because his name was carved into the side of the ossuary. Inside the bone box was this heel bone amongst other bones, and there was a nail, and that nail was lodged into the bone. And the reason why the, the nail was still in the bone, in the heel bone, is because it has a hook at the end. So what most likely happened is when the nail was hammered through the guy's ankle into the cross that he was hanging on, because Yehohanan was a crucifixion victim, it hit a knot in the wood, most likely caused the nail at the end to bend the hook, so later when they tried to get the nail out of the cross and uh, to take him down from the cross, they couldn't extract the nail, so they just most likely used an axe or a saw and chopped that area of the, like the guy's heel bone with the chunk of wood and the nail right out of it and threw it and put it in his grave until a year later when they came and collected his remains and put it in the ossuary. So we have the remains of a crucifixion victim, and what that shows is that, is that uh, in antiquity, uh, in and around Jerusalem during peacetime, during peacetime, that that uh, that even the executed were given proper burials, and this is what we read in all of our ancient texts as well. We read our ancient texts; they 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 tell us that even the executed were to be buried, and especially around Jerusalem because Jews were very finicky with purity laws. And they didn't want, you know, as Deuteronomy tells us, you, you don't leave a body hung overnight. So that, why? Not out of respect of the deceased, 
but so that the land itself wouldn't be defiled, the land that God gave the people of Israel. So that's why Jews wanted to bury people, even the executed, was so that the land wouldn't be defiled. So there's a, there's a whole uh, slew of problems with uh, Ehrman's uh, idea, not, not to mention the fact that our earliest reference uh, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul's 1 Corinthians 15, which was composed very, very early, that specifically references Jesus' burial. Well, I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and we've only got Greg Manette, our guest, for an hour here today. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have two guests in the studio. We're going to have Van, Rodney Reeves and E. Randolph Richards. We're going to be talking about a new book they've got out, Rediscovering Paul. We're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul and looking at his culture and his letters, the world around him, and who he is. And they both have David Capes. David Capes will be on another time. But next week, we're going to have Rodney Reeves and E. Randolph Richards joining me. But, Greg, when Paul writes, Paul only says buried. He doesn't say anything about a tomb. He doesn't mention Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, wouldn't these be important things for Paul to talk about? Well, that's a that's a fair question, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole, Paul omits a whole lot of things in there. And the the purpose of 1 Corinthians 15 was not to give a detailed, long history of what took place. It's it's a very easy, memorable, almost creedal-like uh, recitation of what took place. You know, Paul says basically, you know, I pass on to you as of first importance what I received. And then Paul gives basically the Coles Notes version, just a core, tight version of what went down with Jesus' uh, resurrection. You know, that Jesus died, and he was buried, and he was raised, and then he appeared to a number of people. But even all the people that, uh, that Jesus appears to, it's not an exhaustive list in Paul. It's basically, you know, he names uh, groups of people, and he names uh, James and Peter, the two people that Paul himself met. And I think Paul does on a purpose so that it anchors it an authoritative tradition from the leaders of the church, both in Jerusalem and then, you know, that's, uh, that's James and Peter, who's the, the top apostle. Uh, but that's a really abbreviated list. You know, I, if, you know, if Paul wanted to give more of a history, he would have wanted a length and he would have given more of a narrative. But it's not really a narrative. It's more like a tight Coles Notes version of what, what happened. The fact that he references the burial at all to me is very interesting. The fact that he didn't just say Jesus died and he was raised, you know, that's I think that's very significant mm -hmm. because you know, why, if Jesus wasn't raised bodily, if it was just an apparition, or if it was just uh, you know some form of an, the experience Jesus in a spiritual sense, you know, more like almost like a you know like like a like a ghost story or somebody sensing that their relative has been has, is is in a good place. You know, there's no reason that, that, that Paul would have specifically referenced the burial. He would have just said he died and was raised. As soon as Paul references the burial, in your mind, the physical corpse of Jesus is in the mind's eye. And I don't think there's any way around that. I think what it does is it anchors home the importance of the corpse of Jesus in the process of what's happening. So Jesus has died, and then he's buried Okay, so they're taking the body down from the cross and burying it. You don't bury a soul uh, without a body. You don't, body. you don't bury just an apparition or a spirit. So it's not like, you know, Jesus is still on the cross and then something else is being buried. No, the actual corpse of Jesus has been, is removed from the cross, 
put into a tomb of some sort or some form of burial, and then later on, whatever happened to that corpse, it's raised, and then, then that, and then Jesus appears to a number of people. So, you know, although your question is a good question, you know, First Corinthians 15 also doesn't reference Jesus' appeal to uh, Jesus's appearance to women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't really give any any locations of where the appearances took place. It's very tight. It's very succinct, and that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about Joseph of Arimathea, also sometimes people have a lot of skepticism about him on a number of points. First off, the Sanhedrin had just condemned Jesus to death, and all of a sudden there's going to be a good guy in the Sanhedrin who comes forward. And second, Richard Carrier, for instance, in his book on the historical Jesus, says that one thing, we don't know where Arimathea was, generally, that's my understanding, but he says Arimathea is probably an invented word meaning best doctrine town. Ari being a standard Greek prefix for best, math being the root of teaching doctrine and disciple, and aya being a standard suffix of place. So, what do you think about all this? I mean, can we really believe Joseph of Arimathea was a historical figure? Absolutely. Um, we don't know where most people from history were from. In fact, uh, almost virtually every person in history who existed in the past, we have no record that they even existed, let alone what towns they were from. You know, the fact, if you actually look at uh, some of the criticism of the work of, of Richard Carrier in the past, and uh, and first off, you know, I haven't studied everything that Carrier has is, is written, and he, he does hold a PhD, and he, uh, you know, but but Carrier is, has very creative, um, fantastical uh, views on uh, how to interpret ancient texts, he thinks there's a parallel for just about everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 when you speak to and not not to use the you know the fallacy of uh, of authority where you you're, but but if you actually speak to critical historians who study historical Jesus and 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 in uh, the Bible, uh, you'll find almost none that will adopt Carrier's views. They're just not adopted or picked up. The mm-hmm. problem with Carrier's views is that you know. There, some scholars ha- actually have some idea of where Arimathea was. Maybe it was the town of Remathaim. Um, if you look at commentaries, uh, they'll actually give a few options. But just because we don't know exactly where the town was, you know, my, my question is this. My, my, my thinking is, how stupid would it be to give a fictional name for a town where a person was from in a first century text that was read by first century people in and around uh, you know, Roman Palestine, read by by Jewish people who know the geography, who know what towns are called, and uh, and know what the the popular names of the day are, and make up something fictional so that they would know that it's fictional. That would have hurt the credibility of the Jesus movement right from the start. Mm-hmm. If the New Testament authors created fictional towns and right. tried to, you know, that that just doesn't make any sense. When you look at when you look at the, what the church fathers are early commentators in scripture say uh, as far as I'm aware none of them have any doubt that uh, Joseph Arimathea existed as a figure of history that's a modern skeptical view that only popped up recently so I don't really you know, I don't really see any, anything at all in favor of uh, what Carrier argues there mm-hmm. now also in your blog piece that you wrote on Bart Roman, you referred to the Digesta and how it says that the people's bodies were to be buried, but someone could say, well, 
for digester dates from 500 AD, why should we trust it? That's a good question. Um, my uh, MA supervisor, uh, the well-known uh, New Testament scholar Craig Evans, he uh, recently wrote an article uh, specifically responding to uh, Ehrman's criticism. And what Ehrman doesn't explain in his criticism of the digesta is that the digesta, where it talks about burying people, uh, it's actually referring to an earlier tradition that almost certainly goes back to the first and second centuries. Mm-hmm. So it's like when you're using Eusebius and Eusebius cites somebody earlier, you know, uh, church historians will, will accept that as an earlier tradition being cited by Eusebius. Same thing with the Digesta. It's actually, uh, it's actually referring to an earlier tradition that goes back further. Now, the thing is that it's not like the entire argument is based only on the, on the Digesta. Right. It's a cumulative, it's a cumulative case. It's like, if the only reason I believe that Jesus was buried is because of the Digesta, which by the way, I only learned about that in the last, last couple of years. Right. You know, then we'd have a pretty flimsy argument because we'd be basing something on a later text, which, which I think is based on earlier tradition, and most historians do believe that as well. But even still, it would be kind of it would be kind of hard to hang it all in one argument. The mm-hmm. fact that we have archaeology, and I, I'd like to speak a little bit more on archaeology, maybe in a, a few moments, because sure. we don't just have the we don't just have the heel bone of Yehohanan. We have quite a bit more. So we. We have archaeology. We have other ancient texts. We have the prevailing Jewish view that's, that goes from that goes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy throughout the Old Testament. That even the enemies of Israel were to be buried before the sun would go down. That was that's throughout the Old Testament, and even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it talks about making sure that the, that the uh, those people that die in battle were buried before the sun would go down. And we see this all the way in through the Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about burying people. It's very careful. There's a lot. There's a lot of Jewish writings about making sure that burial was done properly, so that it was done according to to to, to God's law, and that and that uh, the land was not defiled. Once again, it was not out of respect to the dead person, because if they were executed, they most likely deserved their fate in some sense. Mm-hmm. But it was that the land wouldn't be defiled. So. You know, the argument that Ehrman makes that against the digesta, sure, I mean, if that's all we have is the digesta, well then, yeah, maybe we should be quaking in our boots. Maybe Jesus wasn't buried. But the problem with that is that, is that he, it, it's ignoring archaeology, other ancient texts, it's ignoring the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's ignoring uh, the first century Jewish culture, especially during peacetime. I mean, just think about it. Think about if Jesus, you know, or if anybody, forget about Jesus for a moment, Let's just picture, you know, Jerusalem. I was just there a few months ago for the fourth time. I was I've been in Israel four times now. Picture ancient Jerusalem, and then just outside the wall, you know, during peacetime. And this is during Passover. You know, you have a Jewish high holy high holiday. You have dead bodies strung along the road on various shaped crosses or or hung, and then they expire. The people die. And then crows or wild beasts or dogs start taking chunks out of the body, and then they, you know a bird could take a chunk out of a body and then fly over the wall. You know, think about it. Imagine if the bird dropped a chunk of the body onto the temple, you know, precincts. I mean, that would just be disastrous. That would make the temple precincts impure. So even the threat that a, that the, that the remains of a piece of a corpse could enter into the into the city of Jerusalem during a high holy like a high holy holiday, that 
would just that would be absolutely atrocious, and the, the Jewish religious leaders would not have been in favor of that at all. Mm-hmm. So it was also it was once again it's to keep the land pure so that it wasn't defiled. So I just I I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So you're talking about these archaeological discoveries other than the crucified victim that we know of. Okay, what are some of these other archaeological facts that show us that Jesus was buried? Yeah, well, this is really interesting stuff. Um, you know, during my first, uh, during actually during the first time I went to Israel was in 2000, I think it was 2010 with my wife Julie. And then I've been there three times since, and all three times have been with uh, with Dr. Craig Evans and a number of his other uh, a number of uh, other students, so who become friends of mine. And and what I did was I wanted to make sure that Dr. Evans and uh, the group of our students who were with him that we could we could meet with Dr. Israel Hershkovitz or Professor Israel Hershkovitz, who is the uh, who's professor of uh, forensic anthropology at uh, the Sackler Medical Science Center at the University of Tel Aviv, at Tel Aviv. And uh, what his job is, is he's the one, whenever they find ancient bones uh, in ossuaries or, sorry, in or tombs, or if they're doing an excavation, they uncover bones, even animal bones uh, in and around Jerusalem, that they're sent to him. He's the one that takes a look at them and studies them to see what the cause of death was. You know, he can tell, he takes it from the bones and look at what their diet was. Uh, one interesting you know, factoid that I learned this past trip, because we met him again, was I asked him, how did they treat, uh, you know, we know that they did surgery on people in ancient times. They tried to even do like, they, they even did medical work on people like 2,000 years ago. We found fillings of people's mouths, and I thought, how the heck did they do that without having Novocaine or some form of pain control? He said, oh, they did have pain control. It was called hashish. That's what they used to use for pain medicine in ancient times. They'd, you know, they'd give somebody a lot of hash, and they would get them drugged out of their mind, and they wouldn't feel any pain before surgery. But anyways, when we go, we went to visit Israel Hershkovitz in 2012, and during that trip, Dr. Evans and I learned that it was that 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 we no longer just have the heel bone of Yehohanan, which the original the original heel bone uh, is actually at at the University of Tel Aviv in the possession and the caretaking of Professor Israel, Professor Israel Hershkovitz. When you go to Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you're looking at a facsimile. It's not the real one. It's a facsimile that's made to look very similar, almost identical to the original heel bone. So we went to see the original heel bone of Yehohanan with the nail still intact at the University of Tel Aviv at the Sacramento Medical Science Center. While we were there, we also learned, and we not only learned, but we saw uh, some more bones. And this has just become uh, more widely known in the last few years. The last remaining member of the Hasmonean dynasty was a person named Mattathias Antigonus. And he died, you know, a little over a century before the time of Jesus. And according to two of our sources, um, one source says that he was decapitated, and the other source says that he was crucified. Now, scholars, now, now, if if Bart Ehrman was was looking at those two sources, he would say, "Well, we clearly have a contradiction. We have a discrepancy." I mean, it says in the one text that says he was decapitated, the other text is, says he was crucified. They both can't be right. So, which one is it? Or maybe neither of them are right. 
So I can just I can just picture uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, you know, looking at these ancient texts, thinking this is another example of how ancient writers in independent texts have botched the recording of uh, of, of an historical event. Depends well, on which text you read. Exactly. It depends on which text you read. I can just picture Ehrman saying that with, with, with a bit of a passion and you know, conviction combined. The problem with this is that a few decades ago, the remains of uh, the actual uh, the, the tomb of Mattathias Antigonus was discovered. And it's known as the Abba tomb. And there's an inscription on the tomb. And... Uh, and uh, inside, were the, we discovered the remains of a man, and the inscription itself, you know, tells us, uh, basically tells us that it's the tomb of Mattathias. And then inside, um, we discovered the remains. And when you look at the remains, you discover that uh, uh, that he was both decapitated and crucified. And I've seen the nails with the bone calcium, the bone fragments still attached to them that most likely went through the metacarpal in the hand. And uh, these are at the, uh, the University of Tel Aviv. And uh, I have pictures of them. And I saw the mandible bone, which, uh, which has the, the chop through it. So when he was, uh, when he was decapitated, the, the, most likely the ax came through and sliced through. And it, it, it probably took a few slices, but it went through, uh, through his mandible bone. So we have evidence when we look at the remains, and Hershkovitz is uh, very convinced that this is that these are the remains of Mattathias Antigonus, who was both decapitated and crucified, thus sort of conflating these two what appeared to be uh, discrepant accounts to both be accurate. So when you look at them together, they actually both make sense. So, but what does this tell us? It tells us that even a hundred years or so before the time of Jesus, that people who were executed that the remains were allowed to be given proper burials, that they were not left, their bones, the, 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 those who were executed were not thrown in ditches to be picked apart by wild animals, that the remains were properly collected and given proper burial. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between proper burial and honorable burial. Honorable burial means that you go through an elaborate ritual to really take care of everything and uh, in honor. That's what William Lane Craig has argued, and it's an interesting position. And other scholars believe it's a proper burial, not honorable burial, which would mean burial in your family's tomb in a place of honor, but rather a proper burial and maybe a common grave uh, before the sun would go down, uh, given the, the proper due process that was allowed in burial. So that's the difference in honorable and proper burial. So most scholars believe Jesus was given a proper burial, but an, honor, not an honorable burial. But that debate is still going on and, and might continue to go on. So we have the remains of Yehohanan, who was uh, crucified from the heel bone with an ailment. We also have the remains of Mattathias Antigonus. We also, uh, if you take a look at uh, uh, Craig Evans' book, I think it's called Jesus, uh, The Final Days. I think that might be the title of it. I might be wrong. It's co-authored with N.T. Wright, and it's a small little book. And in a chapter in there, The Silence of, of Burial, at, uh, Dr. Evans uh, shows all the evidence we have for people who were, uh, who were decapitated. And we have a number of examples of people who were buried in and around uh, Jerusalem and outside of, in, in the land of Israel in the first century, people who were decapitated and sort of who were executed. But these people, they were all buried as well. And uh, so... We actually have no evidence right now that I know of that suggests that 
people who were executed in and around Jerusalem weren't given burial in some form. So a common grave, a pit, uh, like basically just even a trench grave would have been acceptable as long as it's covered over. Mm-hmm. But what Ehrman and Crossan and a few others have suggested is that Jesus was either left on his cross so that when people would walk by, they'd see him still hanging there, his dead corpse. So in other words, a sign, don't mess with us, or this is what could happen to you. Or Jesus was likely thrown just into a ditch without even being covered over, maybe just a little bit of lime, and then picked apart by animals. So these views are totally untenable, that don't uh, uh, that almost no scholars hold today. In fact, even uh, uh, Bart Ehrman... Um, he hired uh, Jody Magnus, who's a world-leading archaeologist, who I met this summer in Israel at her dig site in Hukok, and uh, and and her, she's written many articles on burial in uh, in the first century Jewish burial, and she is convinced without a doubt that Jesus was given a proper burial, and she's not a Christian, she's a Jewish scholar, mm-hmm. and she and she. Re- she records in her books that she believes Jesus was given a proper burial. And the New Testament account of the burial lines up with exactly what we would expect when we look at ancient Jewish texts and archaeology. And what's funny is that she teaches in this, her office is in the same uh, hall that Dr. Ehrman's is at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. But he doesn't cite her once in his book where he discusses that Jesus wasn't buried. And she's a world authority on the burial of Jesus. Ehrman also doesn't cite uh, Craig Evans. He also doesn't cite Byron McCain, who's, a, mm-hmm. who's one of the leading experts in that topic. He doesn't cite Eric Myers. There's almost no scholars. He doesn't cite Rachmani's catalog. He doesn't... It, it's basically just the people like Crossan and a few others, and that's it. Ehrman doesn't... He, 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 it appears that he didn't do his research very well. Because all the authorities he leaves out doesn't even explain that they're wrong. He just ignores them completely. Well, I just did some checking. The book is Jesus for Final Days, What Really Happened, by Craig Evans and N.T. Wright. But I'd like to remind everyone that what you're listening to is the Deeper Waters podcast, and it's supported by listeners like you. And as you know, we're always in financial need, and we could really use your help here. Now, if you want to give, go to our website at deeperwaters.ddns.net and click on the link there and help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And when you do that, you can get to make a donation to us. It, it, there's a link there. It takes you to Risen Jesus Ministries. You make the donation there, and then you contact me or Debbie and Mike Lacona, and you let us know about the donation and we'll make sure that we get it and it will be tax deductible and if you want to also you can go to the Amazon store and buy some of the ebooks that we have for sale and you can also go outside and click on the link for premier jewelry and you know code word love and then contact me or Lena Cluster about your purchase and if you've entered in the code name Deeper Waters there as well, 25% of what you purchase will go to us. So yeah, guys, you can get your lady something really special and support a ministry at the same time. Now, Greg, do you have a, any organization you'd like to encourage people to donate to? Well, no, I, 
I, I don't, but instead I'd like to just uh, remind people that uh, my book, The Wrong Jesus, Fact, Belief, Legend, Truth, Making Sense of What You've Heard, you can purchase it online at Amazon or most likely at your local Christian bookstore. And uh, you can check out the table of contents online. It's published by Nav Press and endorsed by Lee Strobel, Peter Kreeft, uh, Gary Habermas, uh, Paul Meyer, Daryl Bach, David Wenham, Mike Lacona, Mike Bird, amongst others. And uh, if you want to check that out. And But I just want to take two minutes and talk about uh, one of the number one uh, tools that I've used to help me do my research. And it helped me, it sped up so much time when I was writing my book. And right now as I'm working on my doctoral thesis, it's been absolutely a, a godsend. And now, now, just let me say this up front, um, I, do work, I do now work for uh, Faith Life Corporation, the makers of Logos Bible software, but, uh, but I, I was using it before I even worked for them. And I'd just like to say that one of the best resources someone can have for doing apologetics, or even just for studying the Bible, is Logos Bible software, and the reason why is it gives you instant access to virtually every uh, English translation of the Bible in all the original languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. You can see the original words behind the text just by scrolling over the English Bible and the software, the original language will pop up. Uh, so the word that was translated in English, you'll be able to see the original language. And you can drill in deep to see what the real the etymology of the word and its history and how it's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament and other Jewish literature and Greek literature and classical literature. And it also comes loaded with commentaries, dictionaries, encyclopedias, maps. Everything you'd want to have as a resource to be able to find out answers quickly, even looking into the question of whether Jesus was buried, raised from the dead. You can look at all the other ancient uh, texts to see well, what uh, the Jewish belief in the afterlife was, dictionaries, it's absolutely amazing. It does automatic footnotes for you, mm-hmm. and it uh, and the maps are actually programmed, they're hooked up to Google Maps, so when you're looking at a, a map of Galilee, you can zoom right in, and you can click on it, it'll show you the exact spot today, so it'll show you Google Maps. It's basically, it's when you, when I, when you speak with Bible scholars, uh, ver- almost all of them, they use one form of Bible software because it saves so much time. And it gives you, and as, you, as we all know, when you go to Google, doing a Google search isn't always the best way to look for your answers to life's questions. Uh, so um, I just, I, I recommend checking out logos.com, L-O-G-O-S.com. Check out some of the different library options. For apologetics, I would recommend Silver Package or higher because that includes the red of the early church fathers, but for me, that's been the number one help to me doing research for preparing messages, for sermons, for doing apologetics presentations, for looking at answers to my questions. That's it, because my library is not a physical library. It's digital, and it goes with me everywhere I am. I have over, well, I have thousands of books in my library on my computer, my, and it comes in, you can put it on multiple devices and go on your laptop, your computer, your smartphone, your tablet, which is absolutely awesome. That's my Quick little plug for uh, Logos Bible Software, but also, once again, check out my book, The Wrong Jesus, uh, and uh, I think you really enjoy it. Yep, The Wrong Jesus is available on Kindle for thirteen forty-eight. Paperback is fourteen nineteen. Logos costs a little bit more than that, unfortunately. Oh, of course. Yeah. But I, I would say it, it is a, an invaluable resource. I've recently got the Silver Edition, which I had to get for my schooling here. But I can say, oh gosh, this is so helpful. I carry it on my Kinder with me. And if I'm in a debate somewhere online, I can actually look up 
a verse or somewhere else. Where would you think this means? Look up a verse. Go get a good commentary on it. Cut and paste. And it's all formatted right there immediately for me. So it, it looks really nice when you put that up. Yeah, you never have to write footnotes ever again. And those yeah. people that have to write research papers or sermons they want to cite, footnotes can become endless. So oh, it's nice when it's done automatically for you. Just by all you do is, as you said, highlight the basically copy and paste into your Word or Pages document, and the footnotes automatically at the bottom done. Well, that last bit you were saying about Ehrman, something I notice whenever I read an Ehrman book is Ehrman is very good at giving you the sound of one hand clapping. I mean, yeah. when when I read was going to read, read the book Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, which I was sure was going to be about, where here's how Jesus got things wrong. I made a prediction of the story. I said, as an Orthodox preterist, I am convinced Ehrman nowhere in this book will interact with a preterist interpretation of the text. I was right. Nowhere in there did he interact with it at all. It just looks like whenever Ehrman comes forward, he doesn't argue with the best people arguing against his position. I mean, I don't think there's even one place in How Jesus Became God that he interacts with Richard Bauckham's work at all, and Bauckham would probably be his biggest critic. And Larry Hurtado, and Jimmy Dunn, Mm -hmm. and Martin Henkel. Where I do know Larry Hurtado was mentioned twice, but his arguments are not interacted with at all. And here we've got a case where there is someone who was right in the very same school where he teaches at, and this person is not cited at all. I mean, it it's really also a that Ehrman's readers who don't know better will think they're informed fully knowing what the scholars think, and they aren't, are they? No, no, they're not. And I think that's a good analogy. One hand clapping. I totally agree with you when I mm. when I read Ehrman uh, discussing you know, um, the burial of Jesus and the fact that he showed no awareness that, you know, of even Jody Magnus, he, he himself hired, and she's a world-class authority in archaeology and ancient Jewish uh, beliefs. You know, that, that just, I, I scratched my head and I just found it very odd. I found it odd that he wouldn't even give mention to her. He could have said that, you know, if you want to read up more on this topic, you know, with an alternative viewpoint, you know, check out her work. She's fantastic. Yeah. He could have said that in a footnote, but there's no mention of it. He doesn't mention Eric Myers from Duke, who's just down the road. Barton knows Eric for sure. They live in the same city. You know, as I said, he doesn't reference Byron McCain, Craig Evans, Rachel Hackley. Rachel Hackley. She wrote the Bible on Second Temple Jewish funerary practices. She's not mentioned at all. I mean, if if I wrote my PhD thesis and I'm working on it now, if I didn't cite her, I would fail my thesis. You know, he doesn't say John Cook or Shimon Gibson, just to name a few. I mean, to me, that that was just that just showed a, an overall weakness. And uh, and let me just say up front is that I do like Bart Ehrman. I'm not one of those evangelicals that's a Ehrman hater. I actually, right. I think he's I think he's a great writer. I think he's fun to read. Mm-hmm. I think he's actually uh, done a lot for uh, for apologetics by creating a conversation partner to get people thinking. And oh, the yeah. fact that the fact that Christians have to struggle. To respond to some of Ehrman's uh, critique, and some of it's very good. Some of what Ehrman says, I agree with. Some of his criticism of of Christian uh, thinking and modern Christian thinking. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of the times, uh, you know, I find it, uh, evangelicals sort of respond to Ehrman in a negative way, and they do like with ungraciously. And so, and I've been guilty of that in the past. Yeah. But let me just say that I do like Bart Ehrman. He's a nice guy. I know him personally. I posted him to Halifax to have a debate with Craig Evans. 
and uh, he, he was very nice, and I've met he and his wife, and, and uh, he's a nice guy, but, but I, I still feel that he sort of, uh, he can be kind of uh, shifty when it comes to putting forth some of his views, because as you said, you would never know that there was an alternative viewpoint out there, like as you said, orthodox predator's view. When I get a new book at a, I go to the bibliography. I mean, if this is a scholarly book or such to argue against position or even just a basic apologetics book, I go to bibliography and I look and see, are you citing your best opponents out there? Exactly, exactly. And that's what you do. That's what good scholars do. You have to do that. Yeah. I mean, like, let me just read one one quote by Jody Magnus in her article, Jesus' Tomb, What Did It Look Like? And it's published by, uh, edited in a volume by Herschel Shanks, titled Where Christianity Was Born. It's from 2006. She says this. She says, Today, many scholars believe that since crucifixion was a sadistic and humiliating form of corporal punishment reserved by the Romans for the lower classes, including slaves, that Jesus died a criminal's death on the tree of shame. John Dominic Crossan, for example, argues that Jesus would not have been buried at all, would have been eaten by dogs. In my opinion, the notion that Jesus was unburied or buried in disgrace is based on a misunderstanding of the archaeological evidence and of Jewish law. I believe that the gospel accounts of Jesus' burial are largely consistent with the archaeological evidence. The gospel accounts describing Jesus' removal from the cross and burial are consistent with archaeological evidence and with Jewish law. I mean, that's, a, that's quite a quote. Mm-hmm. But what would you say about some people who say, well, I'm still suspicious because I think the burial is just setting us up for the resurrection account. That's why I question it. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, you, you could, one of the things I've learned in the last few years is that you cannot respond to every person's uh, skepticism. Mm-hmm. There comes a point where you can say, look, you know, I, remember, I remember sitting in New Testament introduction class, uh, Craig Evans was teaching the course, and there was a few students that kept asking skeptical questions, and he said, look, folks, he said, Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Even the most outlandish, outlandish idea is possible. But what's most probable? That's what serious historians go on. They go on pl- uh, probability. What's most likely? What most likely happened? Is it possible that uh, you know that that the that the New Testament included many many references to the burial of Jesus only so that it would eventually get to the resurrection? Sure, anything's possible. Is that probable? I don't think so at all. I, I think that's quite unlikely. I think the fact that the burial of Jesus is actually described in quite a bit of detail in the process of what happened, I think that the fact that when we look at it, it lines up the perf- perfectly with what we know of Jewish law and Jewish burial practices, especially the burial of the executed, that uh, that I, I think that uh, the New Testament stands up very fine, very well, even and I don't think it's just because the resurrection follows. Mm-hmm. But I guess, I mean, but once again, you know, anything's possible, but what's probable? I, I, I think when you look at the lay of the land, you look at what both Christian and non-Christian scholars studying ancient Jewish burial and the burial of Jesus have said, the fact that almost none of them have any issue with the burial of Jesus, and I don't think I know of any scholar that's made that argument that the reason why uh, the burial is included is just to, to build the resurrection case. You know, that's, I just, I find that kind of weak. Well, 
Greg, it's, it's been great having you on, but unfortunately the hour is coming to a close. I suppose there are some people who do have some more questions or maybe want to find out more about you and your work. Do you have a a, a blog or a website or an email that they can go to? Yeah, um, I would recommend uh, checking out my website, uh, gregmonette.com, G-R-E-G-M-O-N-E-T-T-E.com. And I have a blog on there. I haven't written anything recently, but I have a number of uh, of other articles that have been posted before, uh, over a dozen, and uh, two of them are uh, part one and part two, why Bart Ehrman gets Jesus, Jesus' burial wrong. And I explain in detail why uh, I believe Ehrman uh, misunderstands uh, the history and uh, ignores the archaeology and modern scholarship. And uh, so I would check that out. And also, you know, I'm on Facebook. Uh, if somebody looks up uh, Greg Manette, and uh, I'm sure they'll find me on Facebook. And I'm always interested in having a conversation with someone through there. And uh, yeah, so that's the best way to get in contact with me. Um, and also, you know, if somebody really wants to get a hold of me, then uh, just work harder. Contact Nick, and mm-hmm. Nick can Nick can help you out, put you in touch with me. So sure. that's pretty much it. Uh, Greg, do you have any uh, final words you'd like to leave of a deeper waters audience today? Yeah, I, I do. I just want to say to anyone out there who uh, who is struggling uh, with their faith, who has uh, a lot of questions that are really bogging them down, let me just say that uh, this, I do not believe that the search for truth uh, will threaten your faith. Uh, it's actually done the opposite for me. Um, aspects of my faith in the last few years, they've changed for sure. There are some views I used to hold that I no longer hold, or that I've actually uh, altered, or or uh, sort of they changed. They've uh, they've morphed into something different. Uh, but you know, life is a journey, and don't be afraid to look for answers to your questions. And just let me say this: is that is that where you are today will not be where you are five or ten or fifteen years from now. Uh, God is very gracious and compassionate. And, uh, and and God works with us where we are and is patient and allows us to shift our views over time to become more in line with uh, with uh, reality and uh, hopefully the truth. And I do not think for one second that I am done changing my beliefs about God. I believe it's going to continue for the rest of my life. And that's my so my recommendation to anyone out there listening is to not be afraid to look for answers to your questions because after all, you don't want to be living your life without knowing the truth. Greg, I'd like to thank you for coming on Deeper Waters Podcast. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you so much. And by the way, next week your show with uh, with uh, Reeves and Richards, uh-huh. their book their book Rediscovering Paul, I personally think is the best uh, introductory textbook for the life of the Apostle Paul. And uh-huh. uh, I'm going to skim it again this week because uh, I bought that on my own a few years ago. It wasn't the one used in my Life of Paul course, but it was way better than the one used in my in my Paul course, and I'll be listening to that show. And, the, and these two gentlemen, I think uh, they just, I think uh, at least Richards has, they have a new book out about Jesus. So. Yeah, I'm reading it right now. We're hoping to have them come on and talk about that book sometime. That'll be fantastic. Nick, you're doing a great job, and I really appreciate your ministry mm-hmm. and the fact that you're helping people think and ask good, hard questions, and you're getting really good uh, people to interview, and uh, I'm just honored that I was included in that group. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you came on. And by the way, Mike Lacona recommended that you come on to talk about this topic. So consider okay. that, take that for what it's worth. Uh, uh, Greg's <laughs> already told us about who's going to be on the show. 
next week. So, for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.